I was real happy and carefree and young. And I lived in a place called the Valley of Vung. And nothing, not anything ever went wrong until, well, one day I was walking along. And I guess I got careless. I guess I got gawking. That daisies and not looking at where I was walking. And that's how it started. Sock, what a shock. I stubbed my big toe on a very hard rock. And I flew through the air and I went for a sail and I sprained the main bone in the tip of my tail. Now, I never had troubles before. So I said to myself, I don't want any more. If I watch out for rocks with my eyes straight ahead, I'll keep out of trouble forever, I said. But watching ahead, well, it just didn't work. I was watching those rocks and I felt a hard jerk. A very fresh green-headed Quilligan quail sneaked up from in back and went after my tail. And I learned there are troubles of more than one kind, some from ahead and some from behind. Then new troubles came from above and below, a skirts at my neck and a scrink at my toe, and now I was really in trouble, you know. The rocks and the quail and the skirts and the scrink, I had so many troubles I just couldn't think. So I'll tell you what I've decided to do. I'm off to the city of Sala Salu on the banks of the beautiful river Wahoo, where they never have troubles, at least very few. Now we skip forward, he gets to Sala Salu. I'm leaving, said the doorman, leaving Sala Salu on the banks of the beautiful river Wahoo, where we never have troubles, at least very few. And I'm off to the city of Bulububal on the banks of the beautiful river Wuwal, where they never have troubles, no troubles at all. Come along with me, he said as he ran, and you'll never have any more troubles, young man. So we can, uh, we can be like the young man trying to escape all of our troubles by going to Sala Salu where they never have troubles, at least very few. Or we can really be adamant and we can go to the city of Bulabubal where they never have troubles, no troubles at all. Or we can read the book of James. <laughs> And we can discover how to wisely deal with troubles that come from in front or in back or above and below. We've been talking about James. We started last week, and this is our first real week in James. We're going to be in James chapter 1. But James is the book of wisdom, the New Testament book of wisdom. And today he's talking about troubles. And the big question that a lot of us have asked is, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do we have troubles? We do the best we can to avoid them. We try to be good people and things happen. We get sick. We get in an accident. Financial troubles. We get fired. Uh, we lose our employees. Whatever it is, troubles come. And so what are we going to do about it? How can we wisely approach trials? How can we wisely approach trouble in our life? Last week, we began in James and we saw this. From Proverbs, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Wisdom, what we said wisdom is, is having the right knowledge and then using it. Wisdom, you need understanding. That's why we study our Bible. We need understanding, but then we apply that understanding to life. That's wisdom. But wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. Now here in James, it's page 1113 in the Bible under you, uh, if you want that, page 1113. James is the half-brother of Jesus. So James, he, he grew up with Jesus. He lived in the top bunk or probably the bottom bunk. Jesus was the older brother. He grew up with Jesus. He did not believe in Jesus during his life. In fact, at one point, he thought his brother was crazy. You see this in the Gospels where 
Jesus' brothers came to get him because he's, you know, over here claiming to be God and his brothers come to take him home because they think he's crazy. I mean, that's what you do with a brother claiming to be God. And so he didn't believe in his big brother, Jesus. But after Jesus died and rose again, he made a special appearance to James. And there the light bulb went on for James. Now, if you're a man who's also God and you want your family to believe that you're God, how do you convince them? Here's a good way die in front of thousands of people, and then three days later, go have fish dinner with them. That's what Jesus did. Jesus died, he rose again, he appeared to many, and he made a special appearance to James. We know other brothers of Jesus also believed. This is one of the best apologetics, one of the best proofs that the gospel is true. Because who's going to know if Jesus was lying? His family, right? His brother's going to know if he's lying. But yet James became the leader of the Jerusalem church. James was later thrown off the temple, and it didn't kill him, so they crushed him with a rock. You don't die for something you know is fake. James gave his life, in life and in death, for his brother, because it was true. Jesus came, he died on the cross, and he rose again. And because of faith in him, many can have life. And today, James is going to tell us how to go through trials. And guess what? James understood trials. This book was the first book written in the New Testament. It was written probably somewhat recently after the dispersion. So if you remember Stephen, Stephen was a leader. Stephen was the first martyr of the church. They killed Stephen. And after Stephen was killed, all the other Christians, which were thousands in Jerusalem, fled, all except for the apostles. That's who James is writing to, these Jewish Christians who are now dispersed abroad, and they're suffering. Let's read James 1, 1 through 12. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion greetings, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for these words because we encounter trouble and we can't escape them. But you want to do something with the trouble. And so I ask, Holy Spirit, be here with us. Speak to us in the way that we need individually and as a group. Let your will be done here. We want to meet with you. We know that you will change us as we make ourselves available to you. We know that in your presence is the fullness of joy, and we thank you for that. So this morning, do what you want with us, and please be glorified. 
in the way that we think, in the things that we say, in the things that we do, and the way that we worship and respond to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We see here that James and Dr. Seuss have a few things in common. He talks about various trials in verse 2 there. He says, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. That means trials from ahead, trials from behind. It means financial troubles, various. Relationship problems, problems with your spouse, that's various. Problems with your kids, also various. All the kinds of troubles we have fit into in this. James knows we're going to have trouble, and it's not if they come, it's when they come. And what do we do about those troubles? Now, here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about why troubles come, what to do about them, and the result of going through them with endurance. But first, I want to cover something. We're going to cover this kind of fast. Um, if you brought your, your booklet, there's more back there. Um, I, want to, I want to just address real quickly the source of trouble. Now, we don't see it right here, but I want to address it biblically because I've seen a lot of people that struggle with the idea of where the sources of trouble come from. And we had a friend who had cancer and their family and their friends, they got led astray because somebody told them that she had cancer because of their lack of faith. Somebody told them that if they had more faith, then it would be cured. But the Bible doesn't teach that. And so I want you to see the biblical sources of trouble, and then we can talk about how to deal with it. So this is in the booklet. If you want a booklet, raise your hand, because there's a really sweet old guy back there handing them out. <laughs> it's my father-in-law. It's my father. I can say that. Right up here, please. He is sweet. He's very sweet. My in-laws are awesome. <laughs> Um, hey, we have these booklets so that you can take notes in them, you can take sermon notes, but also this is one of those truths. I'll tell you, this sermon is probably one of the most practical I've ever taught because you can use this later. And if you're not going through troubles now, you will be next week or next month. And so this is something that will help you as time goes on. So what are the causes of suffering? We're going to list five and they're in there. It's lesson one in that booklet. But here's the first one, Luke 13. 1 through 5 says this. Now there were some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or, and now he gives another example, second example in this. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will perish. Here's the thing. Suffering happens sometimes. Wrong place, wrong time. Because of original sin, we live in a fallen world. Things happen. Tornadoes hit. Tsunamis hit. Things happen. People get sick. It's not always because of your sin. Now, that, that is a doctrine that goes through the church sometimes, that if you're suffering, it's your fault. Not always. A lot of times, it's just what happens. Here's another source. Luke 13, 16. Then Jesus just healed a woman. Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day? From what bound her? This was a woman who was suffering with a sickness for 18 years, and Jesus rescued her from that. But why was she suffering? Jesus says very clearly, Satan did it. Satan caused this woman to suffer for 18 years till Jesus set her free. Read the book of Job. Job suffered greatly because Satan did it. Now, God allows that. Satan cannot do anything without God's permission, but Satan is often the source of suffering. 
Here's another one, 1 Corinthians 11.32. Uh, I'm going to read Hebrews 12, 5, and 6. You can look up 1 Corinthians later if you want. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Sometimes suffering is discipline from the Lord. Discipline because God wants to do something with you, for you. Discipline, if you're a parent or even a kid, you know discipline is a good thing. So that can be a cause. Here's another one, 1 Peter 3, 13 and 14. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. We can suffer for righteousness' sake. By doing what's right, it may cause you to suffer. But we're called to do it anyway. We're blessed. We're going to see more in this in today's passage. And here's the last one, John 9, 3. There was a man blind, and Jesus' disciples said, Why is this man blind? They assumed he sinned. Did he sin or did his parents? Why is he blind? And he said this, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Sometimes we suffer for God's glory. Sometimes God allows us to suffer so he can do something to lift himself up. So those are the, the, the sources of suffering. But now let's look at what we do with it because regardless of the source, God is sovereign, God allows it, and God wants to do something through it, and there's a right way to go through it. Let's look at this. Verses 2 through 4, we see, G, or we see James tell us to consider it joy when we encounter various trials. And he says this about it. Here's what a trial is. Here's what suffering is. For you know, verse 3, that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So, what's he say about trials? Every single trial, regardless of the source, it's a test of faith. Recognize every trial as a test of faith. We're going to see here throughout this argument, we consider it joy when we encounter trials. Why? Because we believe God is good. If you remember nothing else, remember that. Consider it joy when you encounter trials because God is good. Recognize every trial as a test of faith. Every trial, trial with your kids, trial with uh, an injury, maybe you have a wounded arm and a lot of work to do and you can't do it, that's a trial, that's a test. It's a test of faith. What is a test of faith? Who are you going to trust? It's a test. Do you trust God or not? You lose your job. You have financial troubles. Are you going to believe God is good and he will do what he promised? It says, seek first the kingdom of God and he will add all these things to you. Do you believe that? It's a test of faith. Will I trust him in this trial? A test. Who will you trust? Now, this word means a positive test, by the way. A positive test intended to make one's faith genuine. Because how great, if you have a trial, a test of faith, and it shows you don't have faith, that's a great thing. Because if it shows you you're not where you thought you were, guess what? You get to run to Jesus, and he'll help get you where he wants you to go. Or you go through a test and you pass. How wonderful. I trusted Jesus. A test or a trial is a test of faith. This test, it's like practice. Trials are like practice. When I was in high school, I was a, a wrestler. And so we practiced every day, at least during wrestling season and then after too, but we practiced every day what you do in certain situations. So, you know, wrestling, somebody shoots at your leg, automatically you sprawl. 
You throw your body out, you put your weight on top. Now I wrestled, I was not very heavy, I was 145 pounds, but I wrestled a lot with our heavyweight who was 260. I didn't shoot at his legs because he automatically sprawled and I went flat. But that was, that was what we, we would practice. So if somebody, you're out here, they put an arm out, you grab the arm. There's just automatic responses. If after the service, and don't do this, if you snuck up on me and attack me, I would automatically do some things. You know, I would move my body in certain ways. It's, and it's the same with any sport, isn't it? Any sport you practice, that's what trials are. They're practice of faith. So the more trials you have and you, you go to Jesus with them, the quicker your automatic response of faith is. How wonderful is that? When a trial happens and you automatically just trust God, golly, that is a wonderful place to be. But the only way to get there is by practicing. The only way to practice is by more trials. So we can all ask God for some more trials to get more faith. I don't recommend that. <laughs> but God will give us those trials to test our faith, to show us where we're lacking, and to help us get where he wants us to go. Now, as we're tested, what does it produce? Look at verse 4. Well, verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Steadfastness or endurance. It's a life of faithful endurance amid troubles and afflictions. That's steadfastness. The picture, I think, of steadfastness is an oak planted. And when the wind comes and the rain, it's, it's there. It's firm. It's not the little aspen that just, actually aspens are strong too. Uh, I don't know, a really weak tree that pops up and the wind's blowing and it falls over. Or the tomato plant that you plant inside and it gets really big and then you put it outside and the wind just knocks it over. Or you start that tomato plant outside and the winds blow on it and it grows strong. That's what we're talking about. Steadfastness is growing through trials. Then when the next one happens, it's just like, Bink, I can take it because I know who to trust. So it produces steadfastness. When life happens, we're not shaken. And it leads to, if you see in verse 4, perfection, completion. Let it lead. It says, let this happen. So trials happen. You trust Jesus. This leads to perfection. Now, honestly, we have to understand we won't be perfect until we have our new bodies. We won't be perfect until Christ returns. But we can see this as maturity. Often this word is translated maturity. We become mature as we trust and we, and we grow in that trust. We grow in our faith. What is our goal as Christians? Christ-likeness. As we grow in our faith, we become more like Jesus. Look at Jesus, how he endured suffering, how he trusted God completely. That happens in us as we allow it to happen, as we go to him. And so this perfection or this maturity happens as we trust Jesus. What do trials produce? Think about it. Say you're a really hard worker and you lose your job. Yeah, it's humbling, isn't it? Say financially you're having trouble, you don't know how you're going to pay your bills, and something happens. You trust God and somebody shows up for you, you get a check in the mail. I hear those stories all the time. You learn to trust God with that. So you have humility and you have dependence. Trials create good things in us, meekness, generosity. When you suffer and people show up for you, then when you're doing well, guess what? You're going to be quick to help others. It makes us like Jesus. Christ-likeness is the goal. So... We can think about trials correctly. And when we do, we are like this block of ugly stuff. And a trial happens and it hurts. But through the trials, God chips off pieces and he tries to reveal something underneath. 
Now, again, trials don't feel good, and we might not ask for them. Whoa. Whoa. Hello. <laughs> David. Trials work on us to chisel away that part of us that doesn't look like Jesus. Because you have parts of you that are you. So do I. But God wants to take those parts. He wants to make us like Jesus. And this is a process. God is good. Remember this. God is good. God is gracious. God is patient. It's a process. Consider the disciples. I love the disciples in the New Testament. You know why? They messed up all the time. They did. They were just like us. So you see the disciples in Luke 9. Jesus sends them out to preach and to do miracles, and they do. So the disciples go wandering around preaching in two by two and casting out demons. They come back to Jesus rejoicing at what God did through them. They're excited about it. So they saw God work, test of faith right there, they passed. The next day, here's what happens. Jesus is teaching 5,000 people, 5,000 people, and he turns to Philip, and the scripture says he tests Philip. And he says, Philip, how are we going to feed all these people? Philip goes, oh. <laughs> he had just experienced casting out demons, and he goes, I don't know. So Jesus grabs a few loaves and a few fish, and he feeds 5,000 people. After he does that, guess what? There were 12 basketfuls left over, and the disciples each carried one down to the boat at the end of the day. There was a test. They failed, but Jesus was patient. He said, I want you to learn faith. I'm going to show you what I can do. Later that night, they get on the boat. Same day, they're traveling across the sea. Jesus, again, we see his relationship with the Father. Jesus stays to go spend some time with the Father, and he's praying. Night comes. They're going across. Jesus decides, I'm going to save some time and just walk across the water. I think it was that practical. He's like, I got to walk around. It's going to take all night. If I walk straight across, it'll take two hours. I'm walking across. So Jesus starts walking across. The disciples see him, and what do they do? Ah, it's a ghost. They freak out. They fail the test. They don't automatically trust. So they get closer, and Peter says, Jesus, let me walk with you. Jesus says, come on out. Peter starts walking on the water too. A test, and he's doing it, but then he gets scared. He sees the wind, and he starts to sink. And Jesus isn't like, hey, you fool. Jesus reprimands him, but he's patient. He grabs his hand, and he pulls him up. Listen, God is patient as we grow in faith. He will chip away. Look how patient David is as he's chipping away at the ugly block. <laughs> so, he will be patient, which means we can consider it joy. This morning as I was going back through this, it, it popped to mind, what's a life worth remembering? Okay, this is weird. I was going to share this. Last night I had this dream. I, and, and maybe it was because I've been thinking about this. In my dream, I was in an old house, and I was looking at a wall, and there was all these memories on the wall. And it, and it was, I, I don't know what it was, but there was, there was some war memories and things like that. And, and in it, I was thinking, what is a life worth remembering? A life worth remembering is a life laid down for others. A life that honors God is a life not lived for self. Trials lead us to be like Jesus, lead us to live a life worth living. Because of that, we can consider it joy. These disciples, what happened after they went through all these trials and were tested? They changed the world. They changed the known world. We all have faith in Jesus because of what they did. Guess what? A life of suffering is worth it. So we can consider it joy. 
In James 1, 2, he says, consider it joy. It means decide to think joyfully about trials. It's not, it's not a, a mindless thing. It's not like, uh, what is the commercial, Direct TV? Like, do we all love spilling coffee and they spill hot coffee? Like, woohoo! Or, or bonking their head, somebody bonks their head on something. Like, yes! That's just foolishness. We decide to consider it joy when we encounter trials because we know God is doing something. It's a choice we make. So our knee-jerk reaction to trials, if you feel yourself getting emotional, getting angry, that's your flesh. That's your knee-jerk. Take a time out and stop and go, wait a minute. God is good. God wants to do something. I can trust him. Testing can also mean proof. Like I said, it proves whether you have faith or not. If you're in here and you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord, or maybe you're not sure, and you encounter a trial, if you don't run to Jesus, you're failing the test, which might mean you don't have faith at all, which is a great thing. Listen, this is a great thing. If you, if you realize you don't trust Jesus at all, that's showing you you need Jesus. So if you're in here and you have not surrendered your life to Jesus, you don't get this peace. You don't get him to show up. The Bible says all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, meaning you need to belong to him. So if you have not given your life to Jesus, give your life to Jesus today and then you can run to him and he will be there for you. Trials remove those pieces of us that are not of God. So we see why we do trials, right? So God is good. God allows trials, various sources, various kinds. He allows them to make us like Jesus. So how do we go through it? This is where it gets really practical. This is where you should take notes. How? Verse five, look at me. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. If you lack wisdom, ask God. What we saw last week in Proverbs, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it's the way of death. Your initial response to a trial is probably wrong. You need God's wisdom. God says in Isaiah, my ways are not your ways nor are my thoughts your thoughts. As far as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways above your ways and my thoughts above your thoughts. So we need his wisdom. And look, he gives without reproach. When you, when you go through a trial and you're saying, God, I need help, he doesn't go, you knucklehead, you should know better. Without reproach, he gladly gives you the wisdom. And so we, this is how we do it. Ask God for wisdom. Ask God for wisdom. Life happens. Ask God for wisdom and then seek it. What did we see last week? The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. But elsewhere in Proverbs, it says the beginning of wisdom is seek wisdom. So we ask God for wisdom and then we seek wisdom, meaning we go to the Bible. What does it say? Does it, does it tell me anything about what I'm going through? Maybe we don't know where to go. Guess what? That's why we have groups. You call your group leader or somebody else in your group. I'm going through this. I don't know what to do. Your group leader will go, look at this passage. Or, you know, they can help you out. Or the group leader goes, I don't know. So they call Derek, and Derek goes, I don't know, I'll call Paul. Maybe Paul knows. If Paul doesn't know, well, call my wife. She knows everything. <laughs> but, but that's why we're a body. That's why we're a body. We can joyfully not know everything and then seek wisdom together. Seek wisdom together. So how do we endure? We ask God for wisdom, and then we seek the answer. But... There's something else. Verse 6. But let him ask in faith 
with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. If this makes you nervous, raise your hand. <laughs> this makes me nervous. Because who here never struggles with doubt? Raise your hand. <laughs> yeah. Nobody raised their hand for those listening on the podcast. Nobody raised their hand. Doubt is part of life. We're, we're human. And so we need to understand what he's saying here. Uh, I want you to think with me. Do you remember when Jesus was on his way to heal uh, a man, brought his son to Jesus, and there was a demon. He said, will you cast out the demon from my son? Jesus said, if you, or, or he said, if you can. That's what the man came to Jesus said, if you can, cast out this demon. And Jesus was like, time out. If? If I can? He said, if you believe, anything is possible. The man said, I believe, help my unbelief. Isn't that beautiful? He had this much faith. And what did Jesus do? He turned and he cast out the demon. The faith of a mustard seed can move mountains. He said, I believe, help my unbelief. It doesn't take a lot of faith. It takes a little. Do you ever pray that? I recommend praying that. I believe, but help my unbelief. But there's more to this that we need to understand. It's not just a doubting as if I'm not totally sure. This is a doubting as in I'm not sure the wisdom you give me is right. It means I'm going to listen to you, you know, my group leader in the Bible, but I'm also going to listen to a worldly source, and I'm not sure which I'm going to choose. He says that person, you're not going to get what you ask for because you're not sure you're going to take the counsel that I give you, God says. If you're going to weigh it, and maybe if you've been a Christian very long, you've encountered this. People will seek out somebody to give them the answer they want. I've had this happen. I've had people come to me or talk to me and say, I've got this going on. What's the answer? I said, the Bible's clear. Here's what it says. Oh, that's what so-and-so said, and that's what so-and-so said. I said, awesome. And then I get a call from somebody else that so-and-so came up to me, and they asked the same question that they asked me. And then I said, well, what'd you tell them? Well, I told them this. I'm like, that's what I told them. And so did three other people. Well, later we find out they finally found somebody to tell them what they wanted. And then they went that way. They weren't going to God saying, I'm going to do what you tell me. They wanted to do what they wanted to do. And so we go to God, faithfully asking God for wisdom means you're ready to submit whatever answer he gives. Faithfully asking God for wisdom means you're ready to submit to whatever answer he gives. Listen, if I gain Christ but lose everything, I gain everything. If I gain everything but I lose Christ, I have nothing. So don't waver. Don't be like on, on, a, on a raft on the boat, you're tossed around. But faithfully asking God for wisdom means you are ready to submit to whatever answer he gives. Meaning there may be a little doubting and you say, God, I believe, help my unbelief. And you hold firm to him. Now in verses 9 through 11, we see a tension between rich and poor. And this is a tension that you'll see throughout the book of James. Most of these dispersed Christians are poor, but not all of them. And so there's this tension between rich and poor. There was a tendency for a rich man to walk into a gathering like this, and they would go, oh, somebody's rich here. They got resources. Put them up front. Hey, you move. You're poor. Get out of the way. You can sit down at their feet. We need, we'll give them a place of prominence. There was that tendency, maybe because of what they could get from them, maybe because of the prominence they had, but they would, they would go that way. But here, he, he's referencing this tension because in trials, isn't there a temptation to compare to others? That's what he's talking about right here. In trials, there's a tendency to look at 
someone else. So the poor that are poor and suffering, they have a tendency to look at the rich and they go, why do they get all the good stuff? I'm just as good as them. Why don't I get what they, and, and you can become jealous. You know, why, why is their spouse so perfect? Why are their kids so obedient? What, you know, I want what they got. So there's this comparison that only leads to bitterness, doesn't it? God gives you what he gives you because he wants to do something in you. He wants to make you something unique and special. He doesn't want to make you like somebody else. He has a different plan for them. He wants to do something with you unique and beautiful and special. So we don't compare. Here's a practical wisdom. Um, if you are, well, any age, listen to this. If you're going through a trial, stay off social media. <laughs> if you're going through a trial, stay off social media. Uh, studies show that social media causes depression. Here's why. You're going through trouble with your kids, and then you hop on Facebook or Instagram, and you see that other family down the street, and they're all perfect, and they're all smiling because they're at the beach, and it's like, they're perfect. And, and you start getting bitter, and you start getting jealous. Stay off social media. They're faking it anyway. Let God do what he wants to do in and through you. Stay off social media. Stop comparing. This is what he means when he's talking about this. Do not compare in trials. Because comparing is saying, I don't trust you, God. I don't trust you. You're doing better for them. Instead, God is good. God is good. And he wants to do something special in you. So trust him. That's why we're doing this here. How perfect. Do you know God cares enough about you that he is spending this much effort on you individually? He says, I have a plan for you. And for you to do what I want you to do, i got to do this in you. So he's going to chisel away the little pieces that don't look like Jesus. And it kind of hurts. So we endure because God is good. And what's the reward? So we do this. We faithfully go through it. We trust him. What's the reward? Look at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Amen. amen. I heard an amen. I like that. What's the reward? There's two in this verse. There's two. First one is blessing. Trusting God through trials results in blessing. What is blessing? Blessing is God's favor. Do you want God to look at you with favor? Here's what it says in Isaiah. This is one of the best verses to memorize. Isaiah 66, 2. God says this. This is the one to whom I will look. And by the way, what he means by look is look with favor. This is what I'm going to look at. He says, my eyes roam the earth looking for somebody to strongly support. God is looking for those that he can go, I'm on their team and lift them up and bless them. Here's the one. Isaiah 66, 2. This is the one to whom I will look. The one who is humble and contrite and trembles at my word. That's the one that receives the blessing. How do you become humble, contrite, and tremble at his word? Guess what? Trials help a lot. When you go through trials and you go to the word and you find comfort and you find the answer, you learn to trust more. Trusting God through trials results in blessing. Practice. Here, here's an example. Uh, I don't see Kayla in here. Kayla's our 11-year-old. Uh, when she was five or six, I'm the dad. I don't need to know that. <laughs> when she was young, we were at the swim center, and Lydia was just going off the diving board. She's never had any fear. So she's just going off the diving board, having a great time. Kayla goes, I want to do that. That looks like fun. 
So she goes and she waits in the line. She says, but I'm only going to jump off, Dad, if you're in the water. Okay, so I jump in and I'm treading water out in front. So, you know, this cute little five or six-year-old girl, she, she walks up to the end, she goes, and she just starts to cry. She looks at and she's just crying, and there's, there's Callie and the other moms over there watching. There's a line of kids behind her. She starts to cry, and I'm treading water. I said, you don't have to jump. You know, you don't have to. You can get down. So she starts walking. She stomps her foot. She, gets, she turns back. She starts to cry again. She wants to trust me. I'm there treading water. She wants to trust me, but yet she doesn't trust me. She's kind of doubting. She, you know, should I jump? Will Dad catch me? He might not. Uh, then I'm getting off. And she did this, you know, for a while until finally she went out and she jumped off. She practiced. She jumped off. And guess what? I was there for her. She didn't need me. She swam off and then she did it again. And then she did it again. And pretty soon she didn't hesitate, right? She just ran and jumped. And how much fun is that to just run and jump off a diving board? It's the same with life. As we trust God, we learn we can trust God. We can have confidence moving forward. That is blessing. That is blessing, to know that God's going to show up for you, that regardless of what you're going through, you will be blessed, that he will be there. Listen, you cannot sit in a trial and want to trust God and not trust God. you got to jump. you got to just trust him. Now, there's another reward if we stick it out and we persevere. What is it? Verse 12, when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. This reward is eternal life with Jesus Christ and his people. This crown that he's talking about is uh, the laurel wreath. That would be the reward for uh, an Olympic runner. So they had the Olympic Games back then or, or other games. Um, and if you ran and you won, you got the crown. I ran hard. I was victorious. That crown is available to everybody that runs this race trusting Jesus. That crown, and it's the crown of life. That's eternal life with Jesus Christ and the church. Eternal life. The reward is eternal life. So you can consider it joy when you encounter trials because God is making you into something special and he's going to reward you with blessing and eternal life. An eternal perspective changes everything. Maybe you've heard it said that, uh, you know, this person was so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. That only makes sense if they haven't read James. Because you read James, you learn that if you're heavenly minded, you're going to live it out differently. The reward is eternal life. It is worth it. Here's, here's what I want us to get. If I had one thing I wanted us to get this morning, it's worth it. God loves us so much. When we encounter trials, this chiseling, this is on purpose. So we remember this chiseling God does on our life through pain and suffering is worth it. God is good and we can trust him. I want to finish by reading you a quote by A.W. Tozer. And he writes this, right in line with trials and suffering. Tozer writes this. He says, here are two kinds of ground. Fallow ground and ground that has been broken up by the plow. The fallow field is smug, contented, protected from the shock of the plow and the agitation of the harrow. Such a field as it lies year after year becomes a familiar landmark to the crow and the blue jay. Had it intelligence, it might take a lot of satisfaction in its reputation. It has stability. Nature has adopted it. It can be counted on to remain always the same. 
while the fields around it change from brown to green and back to brown again, safe and undisturbed. It sprawls lazily in the sunshine, the picture of sleepy contentment. But it is paying a terrible price for its tranquility. Never does it feel the motions of mounting life, nor see the wonders of bursting seed, nor the beauty of ripening grain. Fruit, it can never know, because it is afraid of the plow and the harrow. In direct opposite to this, the cultivated field has yielded itself to the adventure of living. The protecting fence has opened to admit the plow, and the plow has come as plows always come. Practical, cruel, businesslike, and in a hurry. Peace has been shattered by the shouting farmer and the rattle of machinery. The field has felt the travail of change. It has been upset, turned over, bruised, and broken. But its rewards come hard upon its labors. The seed shoots up into the daylight, its miracle of life, curious, exploring the new world above it. All over the field, the hand of God is at work in the age-old and ever-renewed service of creation. New things are born to grow, mature, and consummate the grand prophecy latent in the seed when it entered the ground. Nature's wonders follow the plow. We are broken to bear fruit. So we can count it joy when we encounter trials. I hope we're getting this picture here. Why does God allow trials? Because He loves us so much. Why does He allow trials? Because He wants to use you to do great things for His glory. He wants to bless you. He wants to bless us. And so He will chisel away at us using trials to make us like Jesus. Let me pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank You. We thank You for the trials. You say, consider it joy when we encounter various trials. And we can do that because we know that You want to accomplish something great for Your glory. You want to accomplish something great in us. And we thank you for that. Please forgive us when we doubt. Please forgive us when, uh, when we encounter a trial and we get self-centered. Um, those trials we've gone through and, and we, we compare ourselves to others. Uh, we don't trust your goodness. Please forgive us for that. And I pray that we would trust you. That we would, in trials, trust you. Many of us are going through trials right now, and I pray for them. Each of the person in this room and those listening to the podcast that are going through a trial right now, right now, Holy Spirit, help them trust you. If anybody right now does not know you, they have not given their life to you, I pray that they would do that right now. That they would say, I trust you, Jesus. I believe you died on the cross and rose again. I believe that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. I believe help my unbelief. Lord Jesus, do what you want in us. Holy Spirit, make us into the image of Jesus for your glory. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.